Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Church at Philadelphia, the city of brotherly shove. I mean, brotherly love. <laughs> I used to live near Philadelphia, so I... I so you can say that. Yeah. It's too bad. A cheesesteak from Philly. <laughs> hey, I got a great verse for you to start out with. It's not in Revelation. 2 Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. What a great verse. Jesus is a winner. He's never lost anything. And if we're connected with him, we don't lose either. So remember that. Next time you start to get down, 2 Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. Always. Always. No, just, okay. Always. Always means always, and that's all always. Yeah, yeah, that's just the first part of the verse. Fragrance spreads everywhere the fragrance of the fragrance of Christ. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. In fact, Paul, in the original language, he uses a phrase that speaks of the Roman triumphal procession. And that was vivid to Paul and the people in Corinth because they saw these Roman generals go out and conquer new territory, and then they would... these. They, they said that there was nothing like these Roman parades where the great conquering generals or Caesars would come back in and they would just have these huge triumphal processions. And, and Paul uses that imagery when he says, that's us. Jesus is the leader. He's, he's triumphed. He's the victor. We're just following his victory. And uh, as long as we're connected with Christ, we're, we're victors too. So remember that, all right? You're a winner, not a loser, all right? Good way to start out tonight, all right? Because maybe today, sometime during the day, somebody made you feel like a loser, all right? Maybe the world made you feel like a loser. You're not. You're a winner in Christ, so never forget that. All right, let's open up with prayer, and we'll dive into Revelation tonight. Father, we thank you so much for the victory that you have given us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, through that victory... As Paul said, just help us not to uh, grow weary in doing well, but, Lord, to remain steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because, Lord, our, our work for you is never in vain. And, Lord, help us, just stir us tonight, we pray. Just excite us about you, about our relationship with you, about the possibilities and opportunities, Lord, that you present before us each and every day. And, Father, just about knowing that we're a child of the King of Kings, and, Lord, we just thank you for your love and care and compassion on our behalf. And, Lord, we just pray you would lift our spirits and lift our heads tonight as we're in your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. This is the message to the church at Philadelphia. And, again, Philadelphia is brotherly love. And so I just wanted to start out by reminding us that there's an important message there for those of us who know Christ. The Bible, over and over again throughout the New Testament, encourages us to really love each other as brothers and sisters in this new family that God has created called the church. Over and over again in the New Testament, love each other with a pure heart, fervently. You know, let brotherly love continue. I mean, over and over again, there's this exhortation for us to truly love each other. And Jesus said, by this, meaning that kind of love... John 13, 35, shall all men know that you are my disciples because of the kind of love you have for each other. So it is really the love that we are demonstrating towards each other that really is going to be a great testimony to those outside the church and out there in the world. They need to see how much we love each other. And so that's part of the message right here to Philadelphia was that uh, 
Philadelphia is an example of a church that hopefully is filled with brotherly love. Outside of the church at Smyrna, it is the only other church that Jesus has nothing negative to say to them about. Okay, Remember in the pattern here, he usually begins by commending the church for some things and then correcting them for some things that they are doing wrong. And not that these churches were perfect. Not that Smyrna and Philadelphia was perfect. But in God's wisdom... Uh, there was just nothing that stood out in his mind that needed correcting at that point. Uh, and so as you go down through here tonight, you'll see that Jesus really does not correct them for anything. The church at Philadelphia, you'll notice as we move on here in verse 7, this is the solemn pronouncement of the Holy One, the true one, the one who holds the key of David. I want to just stop right there. First of all, holy in the sense that it, it's, it's a way of saying that God is separate from everything else. It, it's what separates the Creator from everything that He created. That's part of what holy is. That's why throughout the book of Revelation, and even in the Old Testament, like the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the Lord high and lifted up after King Uzziah dies. And what are the seraphim saying around the throne of God? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His holiness is what separates him from all others. Now, the reason why the Bible can encourage us to be holy is because we cannot become God, as I've said before, in the ways that only God makes God. In other words, his, his attributes like his omnipotence, his omnipresence, he's everywhere, his omniscience, he knows everything. But in the ways that we can become like God... That's what it means when it encourages us to be holy, to be set apart, to be distinct, to be different from the rest of the people in the world. There should be something different that sets us apart because we know God, the Holy One, than those who don't know God. So the Holy One, then the True One. There's an interesting words here in the Greek. There, there's two words for true. There's the word that means true and not false, and then there's the word that means true and not fake. The word that's used here is the word that means true and not fake meaning that Jesus Christ is real, he's genuine, he's not fake. And, and the reason why that's important is because we've said throughout this how important it is that we knew just how real Jesus was because he wants us to be real. We talked last week about the importance of being transparent, about being consistent, about not being a hypocrite, putting on a face or a mask in some audience, and then being something different over here. God wants us to have a consistent character, uh, he wants us to be the same no matter what group we are in. And that's part of being true. That's what Jesus was. You know something just awesome that blows me away, and I don't want to get into it, but one of the books you're going to hear me preach someday is out of the book of Jude. It's probably my second favorite book of the Bible. It's that little book right before the book of Revelation. It's only one chapter. That's 25 verses. An awesome book. <laughs> it was written by Jesus' half-brother. Okay? Now, his name, all right, is really Judas. The short and first would be like, my son's name is Stephen, but a lot of the guys, are Steve, he's called Steve. It's just a shortened form. Well, and obviously Judas has a lot of negative connotations. Why? Because Judas was not real. He was not genuine. He was not transparent. He was a pretender. He was somebody who went along with Jesus, but never truly, as we talked about last week, accepted Christ and had a personal relationship with him. Jude comes along, Judas, and that whole book is about really being how important it is in the last days, the days in which we're living, before the things happen in Revelation, to be real. And the reason I say that is because here's Jesus' half-brother. 
Here's a guy that, as far as earth goes, knew Jesus better than anybody did. He lived with him, lived in the same house with him. And Jude says about him, he's not just my brother. In fact, he doesn't even, he doesn't even address himself as Jesus' brother. He addresses himself as the brother of James. And it was sort of a back doorway of saying, I don't even feel worthy to call myself the brother, human brother of Jesus. He identifies himself as the bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I see in that is this. There was nothing, looking back on his time with Jesus, when he was growing up with Jesus, there was nothing that Jesus ever did in that home that prevented his brother from saying, I believe he's God. I mean, think about that. That's, what, that's his testimony. If, if Jesus would have done one thing growing up in front of his brothers and sisters who came to know him, they, they believed that he was God, Anybody would have known it, they would have known it. Because they lived with him. They grew up with him. And there was not one thing that they saw in his life that prevented them from saying, yep, he is who he said he is. He is God. Because there's never been one thing that he did in front of my eyes or that I heard with my ears that prevented me from saying, he is the Lord God. That's that's real. <laughs> that's real. How many brothers and sisters did he actually have? I want to say seven off the top of my head. Don't quote me on that. I think I want to say seven. I want to say five brothers and two sisters. And again, we would recognize that's five half-brothers and two half-sisters because obviously they were the true offspring of Joseph and Mary. Jesus was virgin-born, did not have a father, all right, as the Bible teaches. So anyway, let's move on or we're only going to get through Philadelphia. (laughs) And then it says uh, the key of David. And that just reminds us that way back in the Old Testament, God made a covenant with David and said to David, I am going to bring someone on the scene who is going to sit on your throne, one of your descendants. And the the time of that throne, the time of that reign will never end. It it is an ongoing, everlasting kingdom. And so uh, just a real exciting thing. Again, God is just reminding us here of the covenant he made with David many, many years ago. And he says, I have the key of David. And then he goes on to say this, and this is really cool for us. Talk about applicable to us today. The Bible says he opens doors that no one can shut, and he shuts doors that no one can open. And then he goes on, and I just want to read the very beginning of verse 8, because it deals with it. I know your deeds. Look, I have put in front of you an open door that no one can shut. Now, in the Bible, if you just, you know, one way to study the Bible and to get a lot out of the Bible is to say, okay, door. Well, what's he mean there? Is to just get a concordance. Or nowadays, with a computer, just type in the word door in one of these great internet Bible sites that we have, and we have trillions of them out there nowadays, and it'll bring up on your screen all the verses that have the word door in it. And as you just read those verses, you can begin, just like I did, to discover what does he mean by door. And it just means an opportunity, a spiritual opportunity, or an opportunity to impact eternity in some way. Um... And so what what Jesus here is saying to the church is, don't forget, church, when I give you an open door, don't forget I gave it to you. It's open because I opened it. And nobody can shut that door. Nobody can can get rid of that opportunity until I say so. It's going to be open until I shut it. But there is going to come a time where I may shut that opportunity off and no one can open it because I shut it and it's no course for re-entry. And it's just reminding the Philadelphians of this, that 
And it's reminding us of this, that when God gives us opportunities to impact eternity, let's seize them. When, when, when an open door is in front, and here's, notice what he says in verse 8. It's not something we have to search for. God doesn't play hide and seek with his will for our life or for these opportunities. He says to the church people that I put this open door right in front of you. You can't miss it. So don't be scared thinking, well, what's God want me to do? Whatever God has put right in front of you. Whatever is right in front of you right now, that's the opportunity that God wants you to seize. And if God wants to change opportunities or change doors or open another door, he'll give that to you and he'll shut that one down and go somewhere else. But the important thing is to seize those opportunities when God gives them to us because there could come a time and will come a time where those opportunities will dry up and that opportunity to reach that person or to do that ministry or whatever may not be there. It's not going to necessarily, the open door is not always going to be there. And so we've got to seize those opportunities. But I do want to encourage you when Jesus said, look, God does not like have a, a get, get happy by like sneaking around and saying, oh, I'm going to like be real sneaky with them and I want them to try to figure out what, what I want them to do. God's not that way. You know, people think that God's will for their life or whatever is he's up there with, you know, all these secrets and stuff. And we've got to spend our whole life trying to figure out what God wants us to do. And it's not that way at all. God's will for us usually is right in front of us. Whatever is right in front of us is what God wants us to do, you know. And uh, that's what he's telling the Philadelphians. So take advantage of those opportunities. And he's telling us that as well. And he's encouraging us to say, look, nobody's going to shut that opportunity off until I say shut off. That's, that's the cool thing, okay? Now, one more thing, and then I'm going to stop. I just want to finish through verse 8. He also reminds them that they have little strength. And that just simply meant that this church, on a human level, again, looking back to last week where we said a lot of times what a church looks like on the outside to human beings isn't what it really is. Well, this church probably didn't look near as good on the outside as the church at Sardis did, you know. But they were making more of an impact because they had little strength in and of themselves. And we could take that a couple different ways. Did he mean that the church was very small? Or did he mean because of their struggles and their suffering and all that, that they just didn't have any strength in themselves left? The idea is that they might not have had a lot of strength, but that's the time that unlocks God's strength to flow through our lives. Remember what Paul said? He said, I rejoice in my weaknesses. I rejoice that I don't have a lot of strength because then the grace of God and the power of God is flowing through my life. We don't want to be strong in and of ourselves. We want to be weak so that when things do happen, God's the one that gets the glory for it. And there's no doubt that God's the one that's doing it. And that was true in Philadelphia. Nobody could look at the church of Philadelphia and go, wow, they're just so this and they're just so that and it must be them. And it was, no, no, no. It's all God, because they had just very little strength. And I want to just turn to some place, but I do want to finish verse 8. I know, I'm just, I'm just yapping. Uh, and then he goes on to say, You have obeyed my word and have not denied my name. Two things we got to keep in mind, especially in the days in which we live. We've got to obey his word. We've got to obey. That's the primary way we show Jesus we love him. Jesus said in John 15, 14, If you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 15, 14. So one of the great ways we show Jesus we love him is just by obeying his word and trusting his word. And, and oh God, you, you know more than I do. I'm going to follow you. And then, again, magnifying his name or not denying his name. They were in a position maybe where they were told to deny the name of Christ or deny their faith. 
And they stood by their convictions and stood by the Lord, and he's commending them for that. Now, I want to go back real quick, and then I'm going to stop. But go back to 1 Corinthians, because it just popped into my little brain. And I, this is a cool passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it goes along with little strength and all of that. And most of you probably know this passage, but if you don't, this is a cool passage, because it really... I think, I think most of us in here probably can identify with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Actually, you know what? I'm going to begin at verse 25. Okay, be that way. <laughs> I'm going to change my mind. Because this goes along with it, too. Paul is talking here to the Corinthians. And remember, part of the problem with the Corinthian church was they exalted their own wisdom. And they exalted position. And they lifted people up on pedestals. And they, they just had a lot of problems with people worship, you know? Okay. And Paul's trying to set them straight, and, and he reminds them of this. He says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And, of course, we've talked about that before up there in verse 18. The foolishness of God is that through the preaching of the cross, that's how people come to know God? Yeah. And to, to people, that seems foolish, but it's not. And the weakness of God, which was Jesus, the Son of God, dying on the cross, what could be more weak than that to people? Yet that is stronger than any human strength that's ever imaginable. Then, goes on. Think about the circumstances of your call, brothers and sisters. Not many were wise by human standards. Now, maybe some of you are Einsteins in here. I don't know, okay? But I'm not an Einstein, okay? So, there you go. Not many were powerful, as far as the world is concerned. Not many were born to a privileged position. But God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. And God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. That's what he was doing in Philadelphia. They were weak. They had little strength. But God was magnifying himself and getting the glory for it because here was this little body of believers who had no strength in and of themselves, but they were totally dependent upon God and God was just blessing them out of their minds and using them to make a great positive impact in the world in which they lived. So we go on. Verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. That's the whole bottom line. God's the one that gets the glory for it. You know, you and I have to depend upon the Lord. And if we start doing things, as we've said over and over again, in our own power, in our own wisdom, in our own strength, then guess what? Something good happens and we say, oh, yes, I did that. It was me, you know. Where if, if we rely on the Lord to totally do it, and that's why God called most of us as we are anyway, because we're just common people. We're not somebody that if somebody saw our picture, that everybody around the world's going to know who we are, all that. We're just everyday, common, ordinary people. But God said, it's through you common, ordinary people that I can magnify myself even more because people won't look at you and say, oh, wow, it's their wisdom that's making, helping them. Oh, it's, it's their power that's making it. No, we can testify and say, no, 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 it's God who's working through me. I'm just the vessel. And God gets all the glory for it. And we can be a great testimony and witness. And that's what was happening back in Philadelphia. So that's why, as I was saying, I thought, oh yeah, that 1 Corinthians 1, that really supports what Jesus here is saying to the church in Philadelphia. All right, I'm going to stop there. Any comments or questions before we move on to chapter 3, verse 9 of Revelation? Sorry.
Sorry, I'm, I'm a little hyper tonight. Yeah, I noticed. You noticed that? No, actually, I haven't had as much coffee today as I Maybe that's it. I don't know. you keep actually, actually, God has just got me so excited. I mean, I know I'm usually excited, but God just really got me excited. I don't, I'm sorry. Praise the Lord for that. All right. Yeah, hallelujah means yippee for God, by the way. That's what it means. Yippee for God. All right? So remember that. All right? All right. Verse 9 of chapter 3. Listen. I am going to make those people from the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, yet are not, but are lying. Look, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, he's not saying, I'm going to make these people worship you because obviously the Philadelphians, just like us, are not worthy of worship. He's just simply saying there's going to come a day, folks, where those people who ridiculed you and said, God doesn't love you, you're not special, you, God's not blessed you, God's not favored you, God is saying right here, I'm going to make sure that all those people who have said these things about you, one day they will come to a point where they will acknowledge that I do know you personally, that I do love you, that I have blessed you, that I have favored you. There's going to come a day of vindication, if you will, for all true believers in Jesus Christ. The world today looks at us as if we're nobody special. And Jesus is saying, they're very special. They are the apple of my eye. And I'm, everybody in the world one day is going to know it. In fact, that's part of what the book of Revelation is all about. That the people of this world who do not think that the church or the people of God are really anything special and that God even exists and all of that, one day the Bible says, book of Philippians, chapter 2, the apostle Paul, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every. Under the earth, on the earth, up in heaven, it doesn't matter. Everywhere in the universe. Yeah, it is getting a little warm in here, isn't it? i got to stop putting so much hot air out. But, but that's what it is. And that's what Jesus is saying here. One day, everybody in this world is going to know, you were mine. You were one of my children. You know, they're not going to be able to just laugh. You know, oh, you Christians. And... and no more ridicule, no more persecution. The record is going to be set straight. Jesus Christ is going to be acknowledged for who he really is in this world. And we are going to be acknowledged by others for who we really are. That the world can't see us who we really are now. Okay? Again, going back to the fact that that's something that's spiritually discerned. And because they don't have the Spirit of God, they can't see that. But one day... They are going to see because God's going to supernaturally open up their eyes at that point in history and they're going to have to acknowledge that. And we, are, in a sense, are going to be vindicated. And that's what he's saying there to the church of Philadelphia. A church that probably was greatly persecuted and made fun of. And again, this little huddle of believers over here who's just trying to remain faithful to God and they probably think some days, why are we doing this? And is it really worth it? And Jesus reminding, it's worth it, folks. It's worth it. You are a winner. God is causing us to triumph in Him. And one day that triumph and that victory in Christ will be evident to everybody in the world. Now notice, very important verse here. Because you've kept my admonition to endure steadfastly, and my friends, perseverance is especially needed in the midst of adversity. Perseverance is especially needed in the midst of adversity. And that's why the Bible, especially the New Testament, teaches us as New Testament believers to persevere, to endure. And you know the great way that we do that? 
Because somebody's going to say, okay, you're telling me I need to persevere and endure. How do I do that? How do I persevere and endure? Prayer. That's the number one answer. Prayer. Luke 18.1. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Jesus taught his own disciples there in the garden that day. Pray and you will not enter into temptation. Could you not watch with me one hour? Jesus taught how important prayer was. Prayer equals perseverance. You show me a Christian who's on their knees in a figurative way, not necessarily a literal way. You don't have to be on your but on your knees, praying, and has a great prayer life, and I'll show you somebody who can keep on keeping on even when times are tough. Prayer. Prayer. That's why Daniel never gave up prayer no matter how tough things got. He stuck to prayer. Prayer is the key to persevering. Now, here's the deal. At the end of that passage in Luke 18, when Jesus said, men are always to pray and not to faint, he ends up that passage by saying, when I come back, will I find faith on the earth? And the implication is, not really. And he ties faith in with prayer. And he makes a connection between the fact that a lot of people, the reason why they don't pray is really because they don't believe. Because if they really believed in the words that I'm telling them, they'd be on their knees praying all the time. They'd be praying so much... You know, just unbelievable prayer life. But they really don't have faith in what I have told them, and so because of their lack of faith, they lack prayer. Well, then guess what? What's the Bible say? The Bible says, how do we increase our faith? By getting into the Word. So it goes back to, you know what? We complicate the Christian life so much. The Christian life can be boiled down to two things. My relationship with this book and my prayer life. Everything else flows out of those two things. So don't complicate the Christian life. It's our relationship to the Bible it's our prayer life. And they sort of are just circular in the way they feed each other. We gain our faith to be able to pray by our time in the Word. You know, just these spiritual disciplines that Ron talked about on Sunday. And then as we gain our faith through our time in the Word, then it, it motivates us to pray because we begin to recognize how great God is, how much God loves us, how much He has for us, and so that's going to motivate us to pray. And then the more we pray, the more we persevere, and the more we persevere, we're back into the Word, and it just keeps going around, and it just... It's great. All right, I'm shutting up. Um, so then, but here's the key. Real key in the book of Revelation. I mean, not just the Church of Philadelphia message. This is a key to the book of Revelation. One of them. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. This is one of the key verses of why, not the only verse, but one of the key verses of why I am what is called a pre-tribulational rapture person. Meaning that I believe the Bible teaches that the rapture that we've talked about before, where Jesus comes in the clouds and catches the church, the bride away, will happen before the tribulation. Now, one is because the Bible teaches that the rapture is imminent. Meaning it could happen at any time and that no one knows what time the rapture is going to take place before it happens. Well, if I believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, I'm going to know exactly when Jesus is coming. If I believe in a post-tribulation rapture, meaning I think he's going to come at the end of the... I know exactly when he's coming. There's no imminency there. That takes all the imminency out of his return. Okay? The only one that makes sense based upon imminency, which is taught in the Bible, and upon a verse like this where Jesus says to his church, 
I'm not just going to keep you from the effects of the tribulation. Notice he uses the time thing there. He says, I'm going to keep you from the very time of the tribulation. You won't have to go through it at all. That is so significant in our interpretation and in our translation of what this verse is saying. The church will not even experience this trial for the promise relates to the time of the trial and not to its effects. That's huge. Now again, something else I want you to see. There are some people who we call in theology amillennialists, meaning that they don't they just believe that the world's going to keep getting better. They do. They, they really, seriously. They're on drugs. They believe the world's going to get better and that we as a church are going to rise up and sort of become the, what we're all, always supposed to have become and we're going to usher in this thousand years of wonder and peace and all this on our own. Okay? That's, in a nutshell, what the amillennials believe. They believe that verses like this how they would interpret this is, well, this is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, or this is referring to something localized. But it's hard to get around the fact that it says here, the whole world. And there's no other way to interpret it. It means the whole world. Now, I don't know about you, but certainly, as Jesus said, until he comes, there's always going to be wars and rumors of wars, and there's always going to be skirmishes over here in this part of the world, and skirmishes over here, and things going on. But he says there's never been a time in history like this time that's coming. A time that will literally impact every human being on the planet, no matter where they live. That's the tribulation. And there hasn't been anything like that up to this point. I mean, no matter how, World War One, World War Two, I don't care, nothing up to this point in history, has ever affected the entire planet. That's what sets the tribulation apart from everything known in history. In fact, Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, that it is so bad that if it would oh, if it'd be more than seven years, nobody would survive. It's that bad. And we're going to see how bad it is in the book of Revelation as we continue to study. Great time. I mean, great time as far as judgment and wrath and suffering and just awful there's just how people can say oh you know this is referring to this in history this is referring no i just i just don't see it now again i i gotta be careful but i just think it's very clear here that this is what this verse is talking about and this verse is telling you and me this if you know the lord jesus christ your savior you're never going to have to set one toe in the great tribulation not any part of that seven-year tribulation that comes upon this earth that's going to cause so much horrific suffering and torment to the people left on this earth that we're going to talk about in a few weeks, you and I are not going to experience that at all. Because Jesus here said, I'm going to keep you from the hour of that. You're not even going to have to go through it at all. All right. Now let me just go down through here. And then I'm going to stop again. Notice then the context. In verse 11, right after he says that, he's also then reminding them, and I'm coming soon. Which to me just, again, helps us to translate the fact that the deliverance of the faithful will occur in conjunction with his coming. That's why when he says, oh, and by the way, I'm coming soon, it's reminding them that, and when I come, I'm going to take you out of the world so that you won't have to experience what the world is going to have to go through during that time. That's why... Again, we have to study the Bible and we have to study it in its context. And we, these verses are not just, 
you know, randomly chosen to be butted up against each other. They're there for a reason. And his coming is right after, his promise of his coming is right after that promise that they will not have to endure anything within the tribulation. So notice then what he says. And I'm going to stop at the end of verse 11 and ask for any comments or questions. Hold on. Hold on. You know, to what you have so that no one can take away your crown. And we're going to talk about this. Now, let me just stop with the hold on part. All right? The hold on part. Very important. It's Jesus' way of saying, just just hold on a little bit longer. I'm coming. Things are going to get better. Uh, the world's going to turn around. We're going to be vindicated. Everyone's going to know. You know, hold on. It reminds I'm a big Civil War history buff. And when General Sherman was marching towards the sea, he left a few of his soldiers there in Kennesaw Mountain to guard a fort. Well, John Bell Hood, one of the great Confederate generals, came in and was attacking the fort. And just, I mean, hundreds, thousands of Union soldiers were just dying in the fort. Sherman hears about it and sends a telegram back to uh, the guys in the fort and says, Look, we're ten miles away. Hold on till I get there. And as soon as they got that, they just fought like never before because they knew help was coming. Relief was on the way. It was coming. They just had to hold on a little bit longer. And that's what Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia. Man, I think there's tribulation going on out there. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not out in that hallway. Uh, he's just saying to us, hold on. I know there's some days where we don't feel like holding on, but he's saying, Hold on, okay? It's going to get better. Now, he does make this interesting comment and concept. He says, hold on to what you have so that no one can take away your crown. Again, does that mean we can lose our salvation, whatever? I think it needs to be interpreted this way. There's two different words for crown in the Greek language. There's the word diadema, where we get diadem from, which speaks of a kingly crown. And then there's the Greek word Stephanus, uh, where it is that, that wreath that was used in the Olympic Games to crown victors and to reward them in the race that they run. That's the Greek word that's used here. Not diadema, but Stephanus, meaning reward. And what he is simply saying is, yeah, if you don't hold on and you don't remain faithful and you give up some of the territory that you have gained back to the enemy, you're going to lose some reward. That's a biblical principle. That is a biblical. It doesn't mean lose salvation. It simply means lose reward. It's just like how I look at it this way. All of us as Christians can gain territory for God. We we can gain more territory for God, and we can push out the territory of the enemy. But say we say we. Uh, I'm just going to use this for quick illustration here tonight. Say in my Christian life. Just for instance, I've been saved for five years. And I've gained, say, this much territory for God against the enemy. Alright? What what John is saying here, what Jesus is saying is, but there can come a point that if you stop being faithful, where you could begin to give some of that territory that you had gained earlier on in your Christian walk back to the enemy. And all Jesus is saying is, don't give the territory that you've already gained back. Keep moving forward. Keep progressing. Now, this isn't the only time that this concept is, is given in the Bible. If you'll turn back to the book of 2 John, 
Second John is a book right before Revelation. If you go through Revelation, back through Jude, just that other little one chapter book, then you'll come to Third John, and then right before Third John, obviously, is Second John. All right. And notice what John here is saying in Second John. And again, I only it's only verse eight because there's only one chapter. Okay. So it's 2 John and verse 8. Notice what John says. Watch out so that you do not lose the things we have worked for, but receive a full reward. That's what we need to go after, a full reward. What we need to go after is whatever territory we have gained for God up to this point in our life, don't give some of it back to the enemy. If you and I become unfaithful, we're going to give the devil a foothold into our life, and he's going to begin to gain territory back that we had gotten from him maybe a month ago or a year ago or whatever. It sort of goes back to that concept I shared a couple weeks ago in my message about how we can lay something at the feet of Jesus and cast our care upon him, but then we can go up and we can take it back and start carrying it around ourselves. Well, that's the same thing. That means we're giving back territory that we had gained. And John is saying in both of these places, Don't do it. Stay faithful. Keep pressing on. Keep moving forward in your walk with the Lord. Don't go backward. And don't allow Satan that foothold so that he begins to take territory back from you that you had already gained. You know, the the nation of Israel is a great illustration of this. The nation of Israel really never, even under King David and Solomon, never occupied what God said was the promised land. There was, there was new territory that they could have gained that they never gained because of their disobedience. And, you know, I think about my own Christian life to parallel that. God has this plan for Jeff Royce, and it may include this, this plot of land over here. Am I going to go after it? Am, am I going to occupy all the land, in a sense, in my life that God has for me? Or am I going to be like the Israelites who were disobedient and never really fully went after all the promised land that God had given them. You know, it'd be, the way I just say it, it's like this. If God has planned in your life to occupy this much territory, how sad would it be if we went through our life and you just sort of got a slice of the pie and God had all this that was waiting for you like he did the nation of Israel, but because we lacked faith and because we didn't have the commitment we should and all of that, we only ended up occupying that much instead of all that God has for us. That's part of what's saying here, just saying it in a different way. God has a wonderful plan and purpose for all of your lives and just be willing to go after it and just soak up everything that God has for you. That's part of what is meant by the full reward. Go after it all. Don't be satisfied with just, you know, okay, I'm up to this point. Paul was never satisfied. Paul said, you know, I've made a lot of progress in my Christian life, but I'm not there yet. I'm going to continue to press toward the mark. And he kept going after new territory, new territory, new territory. I've shared this in here before, but I'll share it again because there's some people in here that haven't heard this yet. One of the stories that I'll never forget is the story of this 100-year-old lady who died sitting at her desk. And when her friends came in to, you know, they discovered her and everything, here they discovered it. On her desk, she had written out her goals spiritually for the next 10 years of her life. That's dying with your boots on. And that's the way God wants us to go. Man, she she could have said, you know, one of the the people that I, 
I'll just never forget this lady. She was 89 years old. She was a Sunday school teacher in this small church in New York. And she had a group of about 25 or 30 fifth and sixth graders in her class. And at 89, man, she was going to Sunday school conferences and she was reading any book she could off the market that would help her to become a better teacher. And and I'm like, that's the way I want to be. I want to keep gaining territory no matter how long I've lived for the Lord, no matter how old I am or whatever. I want to just keep on going. And that's what these guys are saying to us. They're saying, and it can be that way. You know, there's never a verse in the Bible that says that we get to a point in our, in, in our Christian life where we can just retire and just hang it up and just say, I've done my time. Now, I want to tell you, I've heard that from a lot of people. You know, I put in my time serving the Lord. I, I don't need to do that anymore. I'm like, uh, where's that at? You know? But I've heard that over and over again. It's like, well, that's not what this is all about that we're talking about here tonight. So anyway, let's go back to Revelation, and we're going to quit there at the end of verse 11 and ask you if you have any questions or comments before we move on to verse 12. Yes? I've got one. When it says, um, or when Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test. To test, does that insinuate that you can pass or fail? Or is that in a different context? I mean, to, to challenge... I'm not Good question. <laughs> Interesting word that he uses there. He uses a word, when he uses the word test, it basically means reality will be shown. What What's really there will come to the surface. Which is sort of what refining, it's that, again, that process of refining what's really there will come out. And so what Jesus is saying is not necessarily that some will pass the test and some won't as much as he is saying. And not that people won't get saved during the tribulation because we're going to see that later on. But that what he's really saying is the nature of man is really going to become evident during the tribulation. Because the Holy Spirit through the church, see, will be gone because the church will be gone. And when the church is gone, you think it's bad now. There will be an unbridled time. In fact, here's a cool... Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is cool. I love studying the Bible. <laughs> 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. We're not going to study the whole passage, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says this, In the last days, difficult, perilous, Violent times will come. Fierce times. Your translation may say all or one of those, okay, to describe the last days. And then it goes on to give a description of the people. Because it's really the kind of people that are living on earth that makes living in the last days so difficult. And of course, one of the, they love themselves first. They, they love money rather than love God. They love pleasure more than love God. They're unloving. So there's a lot of unloving things. Yes, Brian. How is this all that different? It's not. That's why I think we're living in the last days. Yeah, exactly. But I want to point this out. That word difficult or violent or fierce or however it says it in your translation of in the last days, difficult, perilous times will come. Terrible. Terrible, Terrible times. Okay. Brutal. That is a word. The only other time that Greek word is used is to describe demonic possession. Now, hang in there with me. Hang in there with me. 
It is also a word that is used in speaking of demonic possession, of speaking about how fierce the demonic possession is. Now hang in there with me. Here's where I'm going with this. What Paul is saying then is this. The world is going to continue to get more and more violent and fierce. And that violence and that fierceness is going to be demonically motivated. So that, again, we look around even at Phoenix and go, man, there's a lot of violence anymore. A lot of murder and all this stuff just in our community here. Where's all that coming from? And it's only going to get worse until Jesus comes. And then, then of course, the tribulation is even worse than that. But let's remember, folks, it's demonically being motivated. Now, I'm not saying these people aren't responsible, but I'm just saying don't discount the fact that there's a lot of demonic motivation behind these violent acts and these fierce acts. If you study, and again, don't study it outside the context of the Bible, but if you study demonism or demonic possession and oppression in the Bible, you will find connected with that that anybody who was ever oppressed by devils or possessed by devils were very violent and had extreme violent tendencies. Uh, and, and you see that today. Again, we may not see it necessarily in the, oh, that person's demon-possessed, whatever, but the violence is being very... And, and Paul is saying that here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. All right? It's part of the description of the last days. All right? Yes? Can you help me out on this, what you were talking about, gaining territory and losing territory? In Matthew chapter 20, he talks about the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Right. Where it looks like everything's equal no matter how much time you're at it. Verse, I'm just kind of confused how that, well, the difference. I think in that parable, and again, parables you have to be careful of because parables primarily are just teaching one thing. And so if you go into a parable where Jesus is primarily just wanting to teach one spiritual truth and you try to get ten spiritual truths out of it, you've got to go into a parable and just try to pull out that one truth that he's trying to bring out there. And what he's saying to you, but it's an excellent question, is this, that I'm not going to penalize somebody who I gave maybe only one spiritual gift to compared to somebody who was given five spiritual gifts. In other words, yeah, do seize the opportunities that I give you and you'll be rewarded for those, in a sense. Not necessarily that one person is, is going to have the opportunity to, how do I say this? There, there's, there's, a, there's a phrase I'm looking for to try to describe it, but not coming to my little brain right now. But but anyway, that that equal equal or unequal gifts will re, be rewarded equally is what I'm trying to it's say. Saved by grace, you know, not by works. It's, you know, it's right. also an affirmation of that. Right. Right. But yeah, it's a good point, but again going back to this, we don't know necessarily how much territory God has planned for us, what we've got to do is just keep pressing forward and keep gaining more and more territory. Uh, that's something that we'll find out on the backside when we get to heaven. Uh, what we've got to do now is just keep focused on Christ and keep moving forward. But, yeah, and God will be fair. That's the one thing we know. God will be fair. Um, 
and, and give us even more than we could ever imagine. Because he is a God that rewards us, and we see that here. Either rewarding us by keeping us from certain things, like we've already seen, the tribulation, or rewarding us with certain things that we've already talked about, these wonderful things, this inheritance that's up in heaven that you know, is already there for us, it's just waiting for us, that he's guarding and keeping till we get there. So, good stuff, though, yeah. Yes? Good question. Uh, I don't have a definitive answer for that, but based upon what I have seen the world, how I've seen the world go, I think predominantly after the, like if the rapture, say, happens 7 o'clock in the morning, and I realize around the world it's not going to be all 7 o'clock in the morning, but say if it happens at 7 o'clock in the morning our time, a few minutes later CNN's going to come on and Fox News, and they're going to be like, Millions of people have disappeared off the planet. How do we explain this to the rest of the world? I think it's going to be alien abduction. I really do. I think that, you know, the world is fascinating. No, I'm serious. I am serious. How do you explain to the rest of the world that millions of people all of a sudden advance? I mean, the world, let's face it, aliens and alien abductions and all of that, that's been something that has fascinated people for years and people you know, believe in aliens and believe in alien abductions and whatever, what better logical, earthbound explanation for all of a sudden millions of people just flying off the planet than these aliens came down in these spaceships and just just sucked them off the Because obviously they're not going to buy that, oh, I bet Jesus came back and got his church. <laughs> they're not going to say that. So, you know, again, and maybe I'm missing it, but the only one of the best explanations to me that they're going to give is, Maybe these people were abducted by aliens. Now, maybe they won't, but, you know, I don't know. Yeah. That's why the Left Behind series, God let that be written and let it be spread so far Exactly. And wide. They, could know. Yep. But, they could know. Yep. They could know. We were just talking. We have told, all of us have probably told people about this. Oh, yeah. They maybe aren't believers. Right. They're probably going to have an aha moment. Could? Yeah. Oops. <laughs> well, that's why I've always... Now, this is... this is, I, I, I confess, this is my flesh talking, okay? But I've always thought, wow, what would it be like to have the rapture doing a church service? Whoa. And you look around after the rapture, and you're one of the ones that's left behind sitting in church. And the pastor's still you take there. Care of my and the pastor's still there. <laughs> yeah, well, we talked about that last yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you want to talk about a sobering moment. Because <laughs> we don't know when the rapture, I mean, it could happen at yeah. any time, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. But, but I've noticed the little guys on CNN were still there. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm hoping some of them at CNN and Fox and all that are believers, but obviously not all of them will be. But yeah, it's going to be a crazy time. I mean, again, we, we can't wrap our minds even around this, but to think that, you know, all of a sudden in a split second of time, millions of people all over the world are just going to vanish. It's just, it's going to be freaky for those who are left behind, if you will. Our pets aren't gone, huh? Pets aren't gone. We're Sorry. Care of my dog. That's what God, will. God will. Yes. I'm sorry, and I'm still no, learning. No, no. But when Jesus comes on the cloud, all eyes will see him, all ears will hear the, the trumpets blowing and whatnot. And that's when, maybe I'm confused, isn't that when the church has looked it up? Well... 
And then I, wouldn't I, everybody know? Yeah. Oh, well, 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 well there is. Know. That's the yeah. thing. I'm wondering if, and I've studied that, if if the trumpet will only, in a sense, be heard by the believers. Oh, because the, the word trumpet that's used there is a word that was used in the Old Testament for the children of Israel being rallied because, again, they could hear, in a sense, the cry of the shofar, and it was calling them to battle or calling them to assembly or whatever. And Jesus does say in John 10, I'm the good shepherd. Only my sheep hear my voice. Nobody else hears my voice but my sheep. And when I call them, they come. So I even wonder if in that passage, Jesus may be sort of hinting that even though it might seem logically to us, it won't everybody in the world hear and that maybe not. Maybe it's just going to be for us believers, you know. Interesting. And they'll have no clue. I'm sorry. No, no. There is going to be witnesses raised up supernaturally by God during the tribulation. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but to answer your question, and we'll come back to that in the chapters that talk about it. But God, the nation, some of the nation of Israel, is it's going to light bulb click on once the tribulation comes that Jesus Christ was their Messiah. And actually, the great witnesses during the tribulation period are going to be the Jewish people and the Jewish nation, which blows us away because, again, today, as a nation, they don't accept Jesus as their Messiah. Now, again, Jews do come to know Christ, but that's individually, but not corporately as a nation. But during the tribulation, the neat thing that the Bible teaches is, as a nation, that most of them, it'll click and that they will go out through the world. In fact, we're going to study that in Revelation. They will go out through the world witnessing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and Many will come to know Christ during the tribulation through the witness of the Jews. Yeah, the church, it's sort of like how God had sort of focused on the, the Jews in the Old Testament. And then, of course, was the church age, you know, in the New Testament. Then God's going back sort of to focus on the Jew after the church is taken out because obviously the church is gone at that point. There won't need to be the focus on the church anymore. But that's, yeah, it's an excellent question. Excellent. Plus, again, there's going to be Bibles laying around. There's going to be videos laying around. There's going to be websites of churches like Cornerstone with messages on it. There's going to be books and all kinds of things that may be in those aha moments of people we witness to or whatever. It's like, oh my goodness, this really was true. And they could come to know the Lord even through those things. You know? Those guys who become Christians then, they're still not going to heaven though, are they? Well, they will as soon as they die. Yeah. Yeah, after they die, they will. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Pastors that were left behind. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there would be people, believers, that hadn't made a full commitment. Well, you know, people, yeah, that didn't know the Lord. Almost Christians would come. Right. Almost Christians, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The Holy Spirit is also removed from the earth. Well, at the great question, Ron, and my my belief is this. Obviously, God is everywhere and can, in a sense, be removed, but that his witness through the, through the church will be removed. And that's a powerful witness that we don't realize how powerful that is. I mean, God is, is going to be here, you know, uh, because he's going to be in control of all the events that happen at that point. But it's not going to be the same as him wooing people to himself through the church like he does today. It will be different. It will be different. Yeah. I don't think we realize 
just how different and how much we probably take for granted that he is in us and that he's with us in a special way in the church today. But yeah, good stuff. All right, let's go on. Let's finish this out, and then we'll get to Laodicea next week. By the way, next week is the last week before two-week break. Don't forget that the mine closes down for two weeks during the Chandler School District spring break, okay, because the kids aren't around, so they shut everything down for two weeks. So the 14th of March and the 21st of March, there will be no mine. But please come back on the 28th. Because we're going to pick it back up in chapter 4 of Revelation, and we're going to get going into the rest of the tribulation stuff, and it's going to be a great study. And I hope you'll remember to come back, you know. If we're still here. If you're still here. Yeah, if we're still here. Yeah. I'll be here now. All right. Now, verse 12, one of the cool things. Jesus always, again, what's cool about the Word of God is he, he knows some things that really connect with the people and resonate with the people. And one of the things we've got to know about Philadelphia that sort of makes this verse come alive is that Philadelphia experienced a lot of earthquakes. It, it, it exists in an earthquake zone. And so they were always living in a really unstable environment as far as the world is concerned. That's what makes verse 12 so cool when he says to the Philadelphians that the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never depart from it. I mean, that's stability. I mean, the whole picture of a, of a pillar, you know, one of these great, like at the Acropolis or the Parthenon or whatever, these great pillars, real stability. Jesus saying, you live in an unstable environment, but you've got to understand your real stability is through me. Your real stability is found in your relationship with me. And there's coming a day where you're going to be a pillar in my temple and you will never depart from it. Man, I mean, I don't know how else to say it. That's eternal fellowship with God. That's you and I too, because we're going to be part of that. And then he goes on to say this, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from my God. And we're going to study the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is just the capital city of heaven. Okay? Jesus Christ has built it. It's up there in heaven. But at some point, it's going to float down out of heaven and it's going to be existing sort of in the atmosphere. Revelation describes it. It's huge. It is just unbelievable because people say, are we all going to fit in the New Jerusalem? Yeah. Now, again, we're all going to travel around all over God's universe. But we're all going to sort of have that mansion, that condo, if you will, <laughs> in the New Jerusalem. Okay? That's sort of going to be the capital city. That's sort of the headquarters. And it's huge. Okay? And again... That's in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. We'll get to that later on. But that's the capital city. So it comes down out of heaven from God, and we're going to be inhabitants of that city for, again, eternity. And then God says, and my new name is going to be written on you as well. It just reminds us all of how intimate God is with us in, in his relationship to us. And also this, we've got to remember that the enemy is always counterfeiting what God has is doing or has done or will do. And remember during the tribulation that Satan, through the Antichrist, has his own mark. It's called the mark of the beast. Well, here Jesus is saying, now I'm going to write my name on you guys. That's my identifying mark. You know, you're going to have that mark in a sense for all of eternity that's going to mark you as one of my, you know, apple of my eye. But yeah, Satan counterfeits everything that God does, and part of that is Satan's going to try to mark 
his people during the tribulation with what's called the mark of the beast, and we'll study that as well. And then verse 13, the one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches as he said so very often before. Now, I, I want you to turn, if you would, and then we just have a few minutes to answer any questions, to John's Gospel, <coughs> chapter 16. New name. What's his new name? What's God's new name? I don't know. Oh. We don't know. We Which is going to be cool. We're going to find out when we get there. You know? Yeah, we're going to find out when we get there. Which is really cool because, again, there's some stuff that God just is sort of keeping back. And we're going to find out when we get there. Which is, I don't know about you, I like surprises. I'm actually glad God hasn't told us everything. It's going to be cool. I mean, it, we're going to get up there and there's going to be all kinds of surprises for us. Now, in John chapter 16, verse 33... Here's a great verse, too. I gave you one to encourage you, hopefully, at the beginning of the class. I wanted to give you this. Where Jesus said, I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. Look, guys, in the world, you're going to have trouble and suffering. And especially, we live in the last days, and we've already talked about in the last days, difficult times have come. It's just a, you know, not necessarily the easiest time to live here on earth, but guess what? To me, it's an exciting time to be a Christian. Because as dark as the world is, it means that the light that I have in Christ can shine that much brighter in the darkness. And so for me, I don't know about you, but yeah, it's difficult, but it's also exciting. It, to me, it's a privilege that God has chosen our generation to be living in what is called the last days. And it really is the last days, okay, as far as the Bible is concerned. But notice, he says, yes, in the world you will have trouble and suffering, but take courage, I have conquered the world. Going back to tying in with the verse we gave you at the beginning. In Christ, we're triumphant. We always triumph in Christ. He's already conquered the world. You know, one of my friends, he, he read Revelation a couple times, and I said, okay, tell me, what, what did you get out of Revelation? He says, you know what I got out of it, Jeff? <coughs> Jesus wins. <laughs> I said, you know what? That's exactly right. That Really, that sums it up. Jesus wins. And all of us who know him win too. So on these days in the world where you're going through some trouble and suffering, you know what Jesus wants you to have? He wants you to have peace. Shalom. That, that greeting that the Jews gave each other. Shalom. Peace. It means inner tranquility in spite of the days in which we live. In spite of what's going on in our lives. God wants us to have that peace that passes all understanding. That inner tranquility. Because he's overcome the world. And though we live in a world of instability, we are totally stable because we are on the rock of Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that. You're on the rock. You're on the rock. Amen. Amen. Preach it. All right. <laughs> Comments or questions? Go, Comments or questions? <clears throat> wow, I guess I'll let you out a few minutes early. Yeah. Yes. I don't... I don't know how this is going to sound, but you said, I remember you saying that having a relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't mean that uh, it gives us a, a license to escape from suffering and trials. Right. The the uh, idea of the rapture looks to me like that is we're escaping. True. My other reason for asking that is because remember all the the early martyrs who sacrificed themselves with them, they're being eaten alive by the lions. Right. Why will we be given, they came before us, and why will we be given a special privilege? 
Well, it's not a special privilege. To escape the tribulation is a different part of God's program. The tribulation isn't about perfecting us as saints or the church anymore. It's about pouring his judgment out on those who reject him. So there's no reason for the church to be. It has nothing really to do with escape. It's all about there's a different purpose for the tribulation. The purpose of the tribulation is that these people have turned their backs on God. They have chosen to reject Christ. And God's judgment is going to come so that his enemies can be put under his feet so that he can usher in his kingdom. That's the reason for the tribulation. Yeah, God is perfecting his saints now through suffering, the suffering and the trials and the tribulation that we go through down here on this earth. And we really don't know, and this, is, this would go along with your good question, we don't know how bad it's going to get until he does rapture us out of here. We know that according to the Bible, we're going to miss the great tribulation. But Jesus does not promise us, promise us how, how bad is it going to get before that happens. It, it could get, you know, as 2 Timothy 3 says, and we all even say, like it's like that now, right? It, it could get even worse. We just don't know where that line is. But I, I guess what I'm saying is, if you study the great tribulation in the book of Revelation, no matter how bad it gets, there is nothing. I mean, we're going to be reading in a couple weeks about an earthquake that is so bad, an earthquake that is so bad, that every island and every mountain on earth is moved. I mean, how bad of an earthquake is, how much devastation is that going to be? I mean, it's just, the Great Tribulation, those seven years are just totally in such a different category than anything that we've ever experienced up to this point. Uh, in fact, Jesus says that in Matthew 24. But yeah, good stuff. Yes, question. Did, oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Just alive at that time. Yeah. Just alive so at that all time. Those are just yep. Yep. And they're in a place right now called hell. But in Revelation, hell, once Satan and the false prophet and the Antichrist and all of them will be thrown in what's called the lake of fire, which is sort of the final place for all who reject Christ. Yeah. Now, again, let me say this. Some people have a problem with eternal punishment. But we've got to come back to the, one of the things we started out with, and that's this whole idea of holiness. If God doesn't do anything about sin, he's not holy. He has that, That's why God gave mankind an out. He said, look, there's a problem. It's called sin. But I'm going to send my son to earth to be the payment for that sin so that you guys don't have to go through this. Remember, the Bible teaches that actually hell was prepared for the devil and his demons. Uh, God certainly takes no pleasure, the Bible says, in the death of the wicked. They're his creation. He in fact, he's not going to stop loving them even after they're in hell or the lake of fire. God will eternally even love them. They, they, don't go to, they don't go to hell unloved at all. You know, that's the whole you know, weird thing about it. You know, and I realize for some of us, that's maybe a hard concept to wrap our minds around is why eternal punishment? 
why, why can't they just say 50,000 years and then get out and whatever? We're going to answer that question, but I'll just give you a quick answer. And I know this is hard for us because, again, it's our human minds that are trying to wrap ourselves around this rather than from God's perspective. But God says they wouldn't want to even if they could. Because the bottom line is, the whole reason why they rejected God in the first place is they didn't want God to tell them what to do. They don't want God ruling over them. They don't want God to be their king. They want to be their king, just like Satan. Satan was in heaven with God. And Satan says, I don't want you tell. I don't want you ruling over me. I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to do things my way. And that's what these people ultimately choose. And that's why it would never change no matter how long it was. Because these people are not going to get to the point where they're going to like God ruling over them. And that's what the saints are all about. We will rule and reign with Christ, but Christ will be our ruler. And we will serve him. But see, we like that. I don't have a problem with serving Christ. Okay? I love him. I know he loves me. I know he's got his best, my best interest at heart. But for these folks, that's that's not something that they want. And I, I know we're going to say, ah, you know, if they were in hell. But really, they, they don't want anyone, especially God, telling them what to do and how to do it and all that. And I realize that being a Christian is so much more than that. It's a relationship. It's a loving relationship. It's not a set of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts. But ultimately, you get where I'm all right. Yes. At what point in your Christian life do you ever feel like you deserve to be like raptured and go to heaven? You don't. Again, it's a grace thing. None of us deserve it. We're, we're all on the level playing field because the Bible says all of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's a grace thing. God's doing it because he wants to do it. Not because he has to do it. You see, that's the thing, too. People say, well, how can God allow all those people to end up there for all of eternity? Well, why? how could God allow any of us to go to heaven for all of eternity? God could have said, I'm just destroying you all. I mean, and who would have been able to argue with him? I mean, you know, people are like, I think, you know. They just don't see the goodness of God and the grace of God and how, you know, it's just amazing to me. You know, instead of instead of focusing on how they do it, and this is what the devil tries to do. He tries to get us. It's sort of like you can have a hundred, you can have ninety nine people compliment you, and you can have one person say something negative, and you're going to focus on the one negative rather than the ninety nine positive. That's what the devil tries to do with us, with God. That's what he tried to do with Eve. God told Adam and Eve, you can eat every tree in the garden. And the Garden of Eden was massive. There was probably thousands, hundreds of thousands of trees in that garden. God said, but you just can't eat one. That's just it. One. That's all I'm asking you to do. Just don't eat one. So Satan comes along and goes, so God just being really restrictive, isn't he? He, he told you you couldn't eat that one tree. And you know what? They, they began to buy. Yeah, you're right. Instead of looking at all the trees that they could eat and all the wonderful fruit, they focused on that one thing that God said they couldn't do. You know, And it's like sometimes we focus on 
Well, man, there's those people who are going to end up in hell. Yeah, but what about the millions and billions of people that are going to end up in heaven that don't deserve to be there? What about that? Does God any get any kudos for that? No, he never gets any kudos for that. <laughs> I say, praise God. Hallelujah. I don't deserve to go to heaven, but I'm gone. Not because I'm righteous, but because of Christ's righteousness. Yeah, Lord. Amen. I'm sorry, I get the... I'm just sorry. I, <laughs> I better close before I get the... Yes, one Self more. Self-implode. One last question. Yes. You mentioned you know, the devil lived in heaven, uh, was was with God. Mm-hmm. What is the timeline on that? Is, is that as far as God creating everything, right? he created the angels in, in heaven, and... Uh, you know, that what's, what's unique about Satan is that he actually was in the presence of God and right. still denied him. Right. right. Um, we don't all have that luxury. But, but um, or stupidity, I guess. Um, what, what was the timing on that? So he created everything at the same time he created the heaven and he created the earth and, you know, Satan decided that he was going to go down to earth and mess with Adam and Eve and hang out there until he could he could beat God. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't really have a definitive answer for that. Um, I don't know how long between the creation of the angelic realm and the creation of Adam and Eve, how much of a gap that was. I really don't don't know. You see. If you study Genesis, Genesis is the is the history of the heaven and the earth. And I I'm wondering if there were the, the angelic, you know, realm was created at some point there, but that there was I don't well, I gotta be careful. There's some time difference there between the creation of the angels and, and the creation of uh, you know, now it could have been that you know, immediately after he created Lucifer and that Lucifer was lifted up in pride as the Bible teaches and it went against God and it was just a few days. But I personally believe it was longer than that, but I don't know how much Plus, longer. there's not a time span before Adam and Eve messed up either, right? Yeah, we don't know exactly how long they had been in the garden fellowshipping with God before they sinned. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, though. Guys, you are great. Let's close in prayer, and I'll let you go. Thank you, guys. Father, we just thank you so much, Lord, for each and every one who's here tonight. Father, I just pray that they've been encouraged and refreshed by your word again. And Lord, just thank you so much for your word, and just uh, use it in our lives, and continue to just uh, encourage us, and just carry us through these days. Because, Lord, we do confess and acknowledge that these are difficult days that we live in. And we need you, and we we want you, Lord, to be such a part of our lives that we can just rise above the circumstances that surround us and truly be a dynamic witness for you. And, Lord, just go with us. Take us all home safely tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. You're great.